From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. everybody to the first in season four of the groundsman brought to you by are you not entertained and in conjunction with entourage media joining me as always my two fellow slackers giles morgan <laughs> and roger mitchell giles mate welcome oh it's lovely to be back i've been on a corporate tractor if, if you know there are some tractors are sort of your john deere's effort for this sort of rougher rougher paddock but i've been in a slightly more corporate paddock recently so it's nice to get off that and uh, talk to you boys again excellent and rog a man also intimately familiar with the workings of a tractor no doubt not at all not at all although i am getting better with uh, the swing plane through the ball with the driver uh, i really made some progress over the weekend mate yeah, well, okay. If I were you, I'd, I'd, I'd learn about the intimate ways of a tractor before you even <laughs> think about considering golf. Well, gentlemen, lots to talk about, as always. As always, so much to talk about. And and the first thing that I would love to get some uh, some thoughts on from the two of you is uh, the the French Open and the um, Nomi Osaka. Let's call it a Ferrari. Can we call it a Ferrari? Yeah. I think we can call it a Ferrari. Rog, uh, for, for those people who uh, aren't aware of what this is about Naomi Osaka, one of the top seeds in the French Open, declined, I was going to say refused, but declined to attend the post-match press conference and was fined for not doing so. And she later pulled out of the tournament, which is, you know, for a tennis player to pull out of one of the Grand Slam events is, is a big deal. Um, and that began the conversation. Uh, Naomi is, um, is incredibly shy and doesn't deal with uh, public attention well uh, and has mental issues around that. And so, you know, that has sprung into life an enormous cacophony of noise and discussion around this so gents i was interested in getting your takes on it yeah i'll shoot off first and then we'll hear giles which i think is the, the more pertinent comment she's also one of the most marketable uh, sports stars in 2021 yeah. so this is incredibly ironic there's two elements to this and there's been some wonderful commentary uh, around in the last couple of days I, I'd, I'd make a shout out to the guardian who I, i'm probably not very kind to in most situations but i think their coverage of this um has been really really good with uh, jonathan lou and um, marina hyde basically two issues the first one is the role of the press conference, is this still appropriate in 2021, uh, where technology allows you to do so many different things about communicating with your fans, and obviously Giles will talk about that. You saw a whole lot of the old school from Pierce Morgan downwards slamming this girl because they weren't getting their access. And, you know, my own experience is very, very similar that, you know, once you start uh, pushing back on their, oh, you must use us, you know, we promote your sport line. They they get they go crazy the, the media. So so I, I enjoyed that part of it about you know the the use of a press conference these days and is it still appropriate and is there better ways to do it? We saw the the app the app Calm uh, actually uh, offered to pay her fine and pay anybody else's fine as a kind of like guerrilla marketing way to to make the point if you will. And, and and that's a huge discussion, especially when, you know, she, in terms of marketing, is actually uh, ahead of where she is on performance. Uh, she's a little bit the cornucova of her age. The second point is clearly about mental health. And, you know, I want to sympathise with her because, you know, it's not like team sports. It's not that you can, like, take a, put another guy forward or, you know, mess it around, juggle it around a little bit. It's you and only you and always you. And, you know, you're sitting in front of them and, and, you know, the 20 microphones in front of you and various cameras and they're asking you questions. And they are, let's be very honest, looking to trip you up. They are not really your friend. They're looking for a headline. 
and she just doesn't need that in her life. And and you know, if she has got the kind of personality that, that is susceptible to this, then I have got a lot of sympathy for her in the sense that she needs to be protected a little bit. Some people come out and say, oh, it's part of sport. If you don't have the mental strength, you're in the wrong profession. I, I think the world's moved on a little bit. I must admit, we might not like that, but the world has moved on. And, you know, how do you play the, the kind of like media exposure game vis-a-vis sponsors and not do press conferences. There are solutions, uh, but, you know, it's one for, I think, um, Mr. Morgan to pine on and how the sponsor would look at this. Charles, just before you come in, I, I, Roger, I would say that you, know, you compare her to Anna Kornikova. I mean, this this girl's won two Grand Slams yeah. and ranked number one in the world. Yeah, right? yeah. She's no Kornikova, you know. I, I think you're right. She is the most marketable property around at the moment. She's a real tennis player, this girl. She's not yeah, there because of her looks and because of Until the... she blew it. I mean, she got to a Wimbledon semi and things like that, if I'm not wrong. But I take your point, Grant. She's she's yeah. she's, she's, she's ahead of that. Well, it's, it's funny. I, I heard this story and I, I immediately knee-jerked and thought how ridiculous these athletes are paid to do that they know what that they know what the scoop is that they know that they have to do their pound of flesh for the media and it's a necessary evil and then i started reading some of the the different takes on it from different media and it made me think like so much of sport which is historically now obsolete that sport needs to wake up to the 21st century and this is just another example of that happening which is the purpose of the press conference if you go back in time was because the audience didn't know what was going on after a tennis match or a golf tournament or whatever it may be is that the role of the media was to be the intermediary between the what was happening on and off the field and the the punter And therefore, the press conference was a very efficient way of saying, rather than everybody doing individual interviews, you all sit in a room and you scare the bejesus out of a a competitor and you ask them lots of questions. And they're fairly anodyne. And as Rog quite rightly says, they're there to get a scoop and a story. So for some athletes, it's going to be frightening. For me, what's now really interesting, of course, when you stop and think about it, is what is the role of of the press conference in a a modern social media setting or in in where media has changed is, do you need the press conference? And therefore, does the athlete need that kind of pressure? Of course they don't. If the fan is interested in in knowing what is going on, there are other ways of doing it, which doesn't mean the press conference of itself is wrong. But I do think it will be a catalyst to changing how and what the obligations are of athletes in order to talk to their public is. Because I've sat in a lot of press conferences, both watching athletes take part, but I've also been in quite a lot, like Roger, where I've been at the, at the, at the sharp end of, 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 of tough questions. And it's your job. But I also think there's a sort of mundanity now, you know, that particularly in tennis, you know, they come off a they come off a court and there they have to do an interview there and then in front of everyone, having lost, to say how do they feel? Well, I feel shit. Uh, how do I answer that? There's a lot of pressure of sort of wallpaper media. And I think for for me, when people talk about, well, the sponsors demand it. No, they don't. The sponsors demand that there is their brand is put up in lights in the in the conjunction of the sponsorship how that's delivered is absolutely up for for technology and for advancements and i think this will be quite a watershed moment about how how the media get to interact versus the public who are after all as we always talk about the most important constituent is actually the fan you know giles if you if you if you look at her sponsors I may be wrong, but I don't think they had any problem with her situation at all. And and what, what you mention here and allude to is a little bit what, you know, Entourage uh, asked us to ask this week as part of their, their sponsorship, which is in 2021, when fan interaction is, is two-directional, it's uh, technology-driven, uh, you don't really need the intermediary. How do you build a brand, a personality? I mean, I'm asking you because you, you're involved in this ever more. And, and like, you know, you can't just say the press is wrong. You need to say, and now what, what are we going to do n- next? How, how do you see that evolving, mate, for a sponsor? Well, again, the, the, the social media channels are very interesting because they're very direct. Um, I think what sponsors want, you know, no one ever bought a can of beer because they saw an interview backdrop. 
I mean, it's absurd, that sort of visibility of, oh, there's some Heineken behind on a backdrop, I must go and have a pint of Heineken, is not is not sponsor engagement. That's not what they're getting. They're getting maybe some awareness, but you look at most sports, it's a car crash of logos anyway. Yeah. So I think what you're seeing is a change of engagement, which again, COVID has done a lot of, uh, a lot of reckoning, um, which is making sponsors think very carefully about not just what they invest in, but why they invest in, and how can they have a meaningful conversation with the fan. And a meaningful conversation generally means a dialogue, not a monologue, which means that the sponsors have to get better at talking with fans and with those interactions, which you see through great, again, digital media, which is very targeted and goes back to data. So what you're going to see, I think, is sponsorship being much more directly involved in the conversation. And therefore, the conversation needs to be about individuals. And the individuals, whether they are individually sponsored athletes or whether these are contracts which are demanded, which is the sponsors need the spokespeople of individual team members or whatever it may be, will become to the forefront of activation because that's what the fan wants. No one cares about a logo on a perimeter board. It's not an engagement. Real engagement, this is the joy of social media, is now we're having real conversation. And the key word is dialogue, not monologue. Monologue, you tell someone something, you just show them, and no one really gives a toss. But if you're sharing information, sharing a conversation, which social media, by definition, is that, properly targeted via rights holders, and as we're seeing with the De Bruyne piece, etc., etc., and where data matters, this is where the future is. Meaningful engagement. Dialogue. But, but what, look, when was the last time you heard anybody say anything in a press conference that was even remotely interesting, well right? Said, because, Grant. I mean, particularly well football, said. right? Every single football press conference or the interviews after the match, when they stand in front of that sponsor's board, Giles, is, it's, I mean, it's utterly pointless to watch as a fan. You know, utterly pointless. They're all way too careful with what they say because they've all been burned. They're all media trained. There's no, no one talks from the heart ever. And so you're never going to get anything interesting anyway. So what's the point? You know, surely the answer is for the players to, to actually answer questions from the fans, right? Whether it's an ask me anything or a periscope or something, right? And then let the, let the newspapers or the media guys listen on that and get answers from that. I mean, it's, it's, it just seems so pointless to me. I, I can't remember the last time I watched one of these interviews. As soon as they get to that, I'll just turn it off. Except for Scott Parker, obviously, Rog, which is, which is always uh, yeah, an entertaining watch whenever right. he's in front of the cameras. But, you know, it, it, it does seem incredibly outdated, this, this whole farce, frankly. Well, you know, I, I think it, it really, if it, it should have happened ages ago in, this, in the media and journalism and sports media. They ask themselves, what are we for? What are we for as, as journalists? And uh, what the answer is, is not to be reporting what a person said in a, a press conference, because as Joe says, you, you've got an immediate reaction. Anyway, we don't need to hear what you write about it one hour, one day later. The press conference is totally obsolete. You know, so what is the point of um, a sports journalist in 2021? I think it is to write really, really well. And you know what? That's why so many of these people are having a hard time with this poor girl because they know they'll get found out. They are not that good a writer. And if they don't have quotes, you know, the open part, opening para, you know, throwing a couple of quotes, closing para, it's formulaic. And that is how it worked. And now, like in everything, tech raises the bar, it disintermediates the passengers. And that is why, just look at the ones that shouted out and all of them you will put under the heading, dinosaurs well and you remember gosh 18 months ago we had john hopkins golf correspondent former golf correspondent for the times on the show this is a man who's been involved in the game of golf for, for probably 40 45 years he has trusted relationships with players and he'll take players off and do proper proper he doesn't need the press conference where he will get exactly he doesn't need the press call he might get a quote he probably won't but he'll listen because he doesn't want to miss out good journalists don't want to miss out but it's entirely true that good writers with good relationships do get the stories that we the fan want everything else is bubblegum yeah well i mean look this is this is the perfect segue actually into something else that i wanted to bring up this week and that is the story about the new york times potentially 
looking to acquire The Athletic. You know, we've talked on this show a lot about the quality of writing uh, on that particular website, yes. app, whatever you, however you take it. Um, you know, it was, it was interesting that, that another deal for The Athletic potentially fell apart um, a little while ago, and now The New York Times comes in and, and supposedly the discussions are serious. You know, Rog, you and I are both huge fans of The Athletic. We've talked about this at length. And, you know, away the opposite end of this pendulum of soundbite press conferences is in-depth journalism, and that's where The Athletic lies. So I was enormously happy to see this being talked about, that The New York Times would invest in the athletic and acquire it. Yeah, it's a great segue, Grant. Great segue. There's so much to talk about in, in this element here. Where to start? I would say this question. No matter how good the product is in a subscription service, can it work standalone? Um, the athletic isn't making money, um, even though it's got a huge valuation. That takes us into discussion about bundling. And, you know, are we actually now getting into the phase of rebundling where, you know, everything is basically replicating in some way the old cable bundle is just being delivered technologically in a different way through whether it's Disney Plus or the merger with Warner and Discovery or or whatever. So, you know, I thought a lot about this athletic thing, you know, and 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 I, we all talk about subscription models a lot and I've always been a big fan of it and I look at I look at the zone and I look at the athletic both offering a good product and I'm thinking can they do it on their own you know in a modern world with it with the the dynamics of subscriptions and younger audiences who believe everything's for free and they don't like paying for anything are all of these businesses destined to be rebundled into some massive media conglomerate you know there's probably going to be three four five um so my, my thinking, Grant, and I'm, I guess I'm going to push it back to you a little bit because you are living um, living this, you're walking the talk with your own businesses, uh, subscription models. I am starting to think that no matter how good they are, that unless you bundle them with something else that makes them more sticky and less binary as a churn or not churn decision, I think they are a tough gig as a business. I'll get my coat. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Roger, it's interesting. Obviously, I, I've thought about this a lot, as you know, and could probably imagine if you didn't know. And I think there's a couple of answers here, Roger. And that revolves around scale and it revolves around the abundance of low-cost capital that's out there. What I think happens is with a lot of these businesses, they've decided that scale is the answer. And whether it's because they want to get acquired or whatever it may be, but We've had this window over the last X number of years where you can build a hugely unprofitable business to massive scale on other people's money and the profitability will come later. You know, there's that, there's that great South Park sketch with the underpants gnomes, you know, the, yeah. the three steps. And that's where we've been, right? And as long as interest rates are zero and people are willing to lend money to failing corporations on the promise of future growth... You're going to see this, but but I think I've also seen that you can build profitable subscription businesses, but you have to keep your costs tight. You have to start them small. You have to build them organically, and it's absolutely possible to do. So you don't need a massive audience to build a profitable subscription business. Now, if you want to build something at scale like these guys do, then yeah, you borrow a lot of money, you hire a lot of people, many of whom you don't need, and you start pumping out content that is way too much for your audience, and you get forced into the business of trying to build the biggest audience you can. And if you think about what a subscription business is, you're, you're offering something to a customer base who are interested in that which you are providing, right? And there's very few people that can provide content on a massively broad spectrum. It's it's difficult to do from a, a knowledge and understanding perspective, and it's difficult to do from an interest perspective. You know, there aren't that many of us who are interested in a massively wide array of things, and we can pump out content that covers a wide array of things. So you end up with a narrow product, a small audience, and then to scale it and get a bigger audience, you have to broaden out the product. You have to make it appeal to a, a broader demographic. 
And that, I think, is where the problem lies. The, the, the trade-off of, of a niche audience that values and appreciates what you do, the trade-off of that in search for the big audience, because if we scale, it's a more valuable business, that's where the problem lies. Because as you go for scale, you broaden the content out. As you broaden the content out, you take it away from your core competency and, and, the, and the, the parts of the world that you're really interested and focused on. And you end up creating content for the audience or for what you believe is the audience rather than creating the content for which you have a talent and letting the audience come to you. And that's, I think, the two sides of the subscription business. It can be done, but it's arguably too slow a process for the world of today when everybody wants scale quickly and we can borrow a lot of money to get there. You know, uh, I was I was reflecting on, on all of those things and what are these big companies doing now? They're, they're putting together, like I say, the old, the old cable bundle, which um, had uh, entertainment. In Disney's case, it has must-have uh, movie entertainment, ESPN, a little bit of news, you know, like Warner's got CNN. So for me, it's like putting together three or four pillars that is a one-stop shop for somebody. But, you know, and I keep thinking, I come back to sport. And how about this one? I'd like to hear Giles' view on this. You know, sport, I keep coming back to this, is more or less organized around geographical lines. Rights are sold geographically. And I don't think a subscription business can work unless it is born immediately, internationally and globally. So when you've got a subscription business that you're buying Spanish football for three years here and you're buying the premiership, you know, Thursday night for, you know, four years there, that, that doesn't sit. I keep saying this, you know, when sport is now part of the entertainment business, we need to look at how the entertainment business works. It works globally. It, you, you distribute your product to everyone on the planet. Sport has got a problem with that, and that's what I think ultimately is the real challenge for DAZN. They're not able to buy products, with one or two little exceptions, they're not able to buy big products uh, in, in multi-territories that matter. Yeah, and I think the other, the other piece is that probably the most valuable component of sport, historically, um, is the... Is, clearly the ability for sport to throw up surprises. Live sport is probably the reason why sport is the most valuable content there is that's still got a long way to go um, in terms of fulfilling that potential because you you can't sell a denouement. If it's live, it's the most powerful piece of that. And you're right, Roger, is that the geography of sport, both in terms of how rights have historically been put together is one thing, but also sports tend to work quite well in longitude rather than latitude. I, if you're at a plus three, minus three time zone, there's a lot of people who can watch a time zone. But that's absolutely hopeless if you live in, say, Asia from London or West Coast America from, from London. Then you've got real problems there. And that, that is one of the, the major challenges for, this, for the sports industry, is that if live is its most powerful component rather than watching as live... Well, one of the ways that you try and deal around that is make more interesting content around it, which you always talk about, much shorter form content, yeah. which is less reliant on the, the live piece. I was talking to Matthew Pinsent on the, on the captain's table. He was absolutely right. When Michael Johnson in 1996 ran that extraordinary 200 metres gold medal win and shattered the world record, the reason it was so compelling, it was live. Had you watched it three hours later, whether you'd heard or not, because it wasn't live, you'd be missing something. And this yeah. is a really, really important part of sport yeah. where the geography doesn't always lend itself to live because of just sheer timing logistics, let alone the television bundling up of different rights of who owns what. And that makes a, a fully conglomerated business much harder than, say, a Netflix. That's true. You know, like it's interesting you say there about non-live, you know, John Skipper, who used to be the head of the zone, has now moved over to another company that will, is, again, as take Grant's point, very well funded by Capital now uh, to make, um, what do they call it, shoulder content, documentaries, docu-series. You know, you, you look at that big deal that happened this week and you look at the rumours that, you know, Apple's going to buy the zone or they're going to buy whatever... This is the point I think is really important. 
sport will be absolutely affected like a little boat on the big ocean of media and entertainment. And when media and entertainment has a seismic shift that tsunami is going to come to sport. And regardless whether you think it's not right, it's not traditional, we must defend this, we mustn't go in that direction. You know, uh, too bad. Too bad, you know, like we can talk about, you know, briefly, because I don't think it's worth an awful lot, you know, like um, Mayweather and, and Logan Paul, probably not very credible as a, as a boxing event, but, you know, uh, that happens that works there'll be one it's one of the one of many and, and you know we, we are part of the entertainment business well see rod perfect example i i mean that fight took place last night i've got no idea what happened and i could care less <laughs> i haven't checked i don't look I, I have no idea i've honestly got no idea what happened so again there's this niche-ness to this this kind of stuff that is important you know in sport if there's a some big sporting event that that matters and i don't just mean matters to me if it's you know, if there's a World Cup going on, I want to know who won the semi-final. If there's an Olympics going on, I want to know who won the 100 metres if, if it happened overnight. Stuff like this, this made for TV, made for a, for an audience. I just don't care about it. And I'm sure there are no, plenty others like me that just I know don't you, care. I know you don't. I know, but it's, it's not. We've had this conversation. You know, people are investing in non-live. People are investing in different formats. Let's look at lacrosse. Our friends at lacrosse, the Raban brothers, lacrosse was dying uh, the, 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 the world class athletes couldn't you know get a bus ticket they were so poor um, they come along, they change the format they change the governance they, they make it much more uh, for the MTV or the TikTok generation now they get refunded again I think it's by um, Kraft you know, um, they get the guy, the Patriots um, smart, smart, smart guy you know, all the signs are around. If you stay still, you will be run over like a steamroller if you stay still. And, and, you know, that doesn't mean that every new thing that comes up is going to work. It just means you've got to be thinking every day a little bit like Andy Grove. Remember him in the old day of Intel? Only the paranoid mm -hmm. survive. And I plead with sport, go into your offices or whatever your Zoom calls every day and think, what's going to get me today? What do I need to do today to not be roadkill? But didn't you find that that's what John Inverdale was saying on our on our, our chat with him? He the absolutely other week. said that, yeah. He was very much saying, and I think that the two of you are often you you represent different sides, but actually you agree in the middle of the Venn diagram, which is it has to be authentic. So yes, sports have to shake themselves up and look at format changes. Lacrosse is a great example. But ultimately, if it isn't real sport, I proper binary people, which is I win, you lose, with the suspense and thriller around that, then you really struggle. I think Snowcross is, I always use that as the example, um, taken from X Games, which the IOC grabbed hold of for the Winter Olympics. It's been one of their big successes, where the Winter Olympics has absolutely kept pace with the younger generation by the addition of other sports. It's still bloody good sport, but it's new. That was a big tick in the box. The trouble is they also maintain other sports um, that possibly should maybe like... Um, I think, what was it, the vertical jump or whatever Inver's was talking about. You know, there, there, there are things that can go too. Yeah. And sports need to look to themselves. And as you say, I like that quote about paranoia. If you're paranoid, you've got half a chance. Yeah. And it's not easy. You know, like one of the things I also wanted to like chat about over the sandwich just now, we, we just had Ed, um, Tom Harrison on from ECB. It was a wonderful discussion. We recorded that just before... <laughs> the horrible incident with Ollie Robinson. He then, Tom, you know, takes a stand that says uh, we can't have that, uh, blah, blah, blah. And he's now getting hammered by what, what I always call the opportunistic politicians of the day that smell smell something that's got uh, populist support, in which, which is let the guy play. Uh, and, and, and this is one of these things that I always talk about. And only the, those of us that have been running a sport know this. It's like the Star Trek uh, Kubayashi Maru test. There is no win here for Tom Harrison. And, and you know, I, I don't know what I would have done, but, you know, I don't see any win. And, and, and you know, what, what, what would you guys have done when you see those tweets and everything like that? He did it as a young man many years ago. Um, would, would you have banned him? Would you have tried to, 
Because like, this is going to happen more and more. This generation is now digital, the ones that are coming into sport elite performance. People are going to start digging up on what they were saying on social media 10 years ago. And you're going to get more and more of this stuff. So, you know, what would you do if you'd been Tom? Well, I'll go first. I think it was a really, I mean, an almost impossible um, decision for him. I think that, again, and again, not so isolating it to just to Tom, but as you say, digital footprints and your history goes back now forever. You know, the, the, if you have anything that's digital, it exists forever. You cannot delete as in the past people could delete and forgive and forget and move on. It's something that's very difficult to do is, as coals can be re-raked and re-raked time after time and will be for forevermore. And I hope that therefore, in, as a society or in society, we have the ability to remember forgiveness as well and understanding and the understanding of contrition and apology which i'm not entirely certain in in the modern world is really understood either is that when people apologize that can be enough yeah um and that no one is is perfect the trouble is is that people are demanding perfection when we as a species are deeply not perfect and therefore it's it's a really difficult one and i don't have the answer i don't know what i've done in tom's in in tom's position but i do feel that Everybody has a chance of contrition, and I do believe that everybody has a chance of forgiveness. And I do believe as well that there are people who are always looking to be judge, jury, and executioner yes. because they can be. And I'm not sure that's helpful in a real human world where to err is human, I think is the quote. Yeah, I, look, I, I couldn't agree more. It's funny this comes up. This week I was thinking about this, and uh, in the middle of the week there were images all over social media of the Bing search for Tank Man in Tiananmen Square, you know, the, the yeah. guy who stood in front of the tank. And if you search for Tank Man, that's, that's what the image is known. As you see this picture of the guy standing in front of the column of tanks. And, and you know, those of us who were of an age that time remember that oh so vividly. Uh, and, of course, in China, it's, it's absolutely verboten. It didn't happen as far as the Chinese are concerned. And, you know, they, they, on social media, they had images up of a Google search for Tank Man and showing all the images and Microsoft's Bing search. I didn't even realize anyone used that, but apparently they do. Uh, when you search Tank Man, there's no images there. Now, oh there was a massive amount, there was a massive amount of opprobrium directed at Microsoft. You know, shame on Microsoft, shame on Microsoft. Um, they came out and apologized. It was human error, apparently. Presumably that, that human error being someone in the C-suite telling them to hide the images, but who knows. But, uh, you know, it got me thinking, the amount of people who are outraged at this idea that the Chinese would try and, um, you know, whitewash their history and take Tiananmen Square out of the equation, and many of them are the same people who are demanding that we pull down statues of Edward Colston and, you know, pull down statues of this guy and, and you know, change history. History happened. It's a fact. It, we don't always like it. Uh, in the moment, it seems appropriate for the times. And then in years to come, times move on, Roger, as, as you point out in just about everything we talk about. So I think that can happen with people too. You know, the Ollie Robinson of today is a different Ollie Robinson. You know, why, why should you judge an 18-year-old kid, you, you know, when he's now a completely different person? And, and this, you know, this is part of a much broader conversation. But the, this cancel culture is... I think one of the biggest problems that we as a society face today, I really do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, it's like I say, Kubayashi Maru, really no, no win, no win at all. Changing gear a little bit and making it a little bit lighter, um, my eye was struck uh, over the weekend by seeing that Kate Upton is investing in football in Mexico. What a wonderful story that is. I wouldn't have read that story if it didn't have the two words Kate Upton in the headline. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I dare say an image, Rog, perhaps? But the word two probably comes into that one as well. So, like, I looked it up. No, but seriously, it, it is a big story because um, Mexican football, people missing this again, you know, like, it's get, they get bigger audiences, I think, than MLS. You know, I personally believe that we are not so far away from the merging of MLS, uh, Canadian football, Mexican football to do a kind of like NAFTA that I, I think ultimately, I think in 10 years time, we may see the power base in association football shift to the Americas. And, you know, I think you see a lot of the smart money 
already looking at uh, these investments. You know, this 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 club, okay, it's full of celebs and maybe they're all on the kind of like Kool-Aid about let's invest in sport, it's the cool thing to do. You know, hang out with this guy, that guy. It's all kind of like page six tabloid stuff, isn't it? But, you know, then you see... And this one's a strange one as well. There was an, a, a minority investment in DC United, which is an MLS team. Uh, an outrageous valuation, guys. $710 million, even when you do the calculation into sterling. That's much bigger than an Everton or, you know, an Aston Villa. This is fucking DC United, guys. You know, a lot of people are saying that you'll love this grant. A lot of people are saying this is just the kind of like little small investment, a little raise that prices the rest of the round. And that, you know, good luck trying to sell the whole DC United for $710 million. Uh, Mark Panes commented on that quite interestingly. But what I'm saying is, um, yeah, there's a lot of games going on and people are, are doing the, the VC game on valuations and mark to market and all that. I get that. I get that. And, and, you know, once again, that's finance and sport coming together with all the tricks. But the main theme I would say is keep an eye out for NAFTA association football. That's one of the big, big things. But isn't that interesting? You talk about that model and you're right, the, the, the Hispanic football culture in the Americas is massive. Well, no one should be surprised there. And suddenly there's valuations coming on. Why? Because it comes back to fan data again. It becomes to the value of the audience. We saw exactly the same. Who would have thought that 30 years ago that you'd think that there would be a thing called the IPL that would be one of the biggest leagues in the world in well cricket said. that is absolutely driving the game of cricket you know even the test match test matches are now genuflecting to the court of the IPL because they know how valuable why is it valuable because you have this massive audience coming out of India that is driving consumption both in media but also for sponsors and therefore driving wealth and that is the new model and I think you're right I think that the Americas have a very interesting role to play for association football which maybe maybe threatens the uh, the hegemony of Switzerland as the global beating heart of football, but I'm only guessing. Um, in, the, in the same way that we've seen India become the beating heart of cricket. Which, How interesting. Which is, of course, what it, right. which is, of course, what has happened. And the BCCI is the, is the number one cricket association of them all, um, whatever the ICC will tell you. And so it goes on. You look at sports like badminton. You look at sports like table tennis. You even look at sports which quite often in pubs um, get to laugh, which is kabaddi, which is one of the biggest sports in the world, played out of India and yep. Pakistan, and is yep. cu uh, culturally iconic in those countries. Well, why would you not build a big business model out of a sport like kabaddi, which is viewed by often quarter of a billion people? That suddenly puts rugby union, which has a very overinflated well sense well of itself said. and scale, when it's really played in the old colonial countries. And I love rugby. It's my number one sport. I'm not knocking it. But if we want to look where the revolutions are coming from, they're not coming from the fusty panelled uh, drawing rooms of, of the establishment clubs in St. James's, nor are they coming, I suspect, from Switzerland. I suspect they're coming from where the fan base lies. Yes. It's, it's very true, but Roger, let me ask you this: DC United, what price that deal if interest rates are four percent? Yeah, no. Listen, I agree with you. Listen, it's a tenth of that. So that's why I said that there's a whole lot of games in there, and and you know there's a little bit of parse the parcel. And you know I, I work a lot in 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 rights and and sport tech and and even private equity stuff in sport and value is what value says you know there's it's in the eye of the beholder and if you can get somebody to invest for five percent at such a high valuation it reprices the whole of the club and if you can then go to somebody that's got a SPAC and looking to get an operating company and say look you know we just raised it this amount so no need to worry about the valuation it's set bingo do you know what i mean it's a little bit it's a little bit that game grant you know that game very well no, no, look, of course. But if you think, if it's interesting, right? You think back to the dot-com era and we saw all this money being borrowed and fiber optic cable being laid and all the stuff we saw in the, in the dot-com boom in the late 90s. When that bubble burst, you know, interest rates went up, the bubble burst, there was a whole bunch of infrastructure left, which is why today we only pay $9 a month for internet, right? Because all the infrastructure had been paid for and was picked up for pennies on the dollar. This time around, 
when this thing bursts, when rates go up and suddenly these, uh, these franchises aren't worth anything like what they're being paid for today, what happens then? There's an awful lot of value that's just going to go away. You've not built anything. You've not done anything physical that someone else can pick up for pennies on the dollar. You, you know, what you've done is you've raised the valuation of your franchise, but based on what, realistically speaking? Based on what? So the sport, I think sport is, at, at this late point in the cycle, I think sport is playing a very, very dangerous game, levering up massively to buy these franchises at prices that in a normal environment, a normal monetary environment, don't even come close to what they're worth today. Well, you say, Not even close. You say sport, but I, w- I would be more precise and say the investors in sport. Because, yeah, 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 yeah you're right. Because, you know, what's going to happen? You know, let's say it all crashes and DC United is a basket case. Somebody, again, is going to get it for pennies in the dollar. And, you know, it will still exist. The fans will still exist, you know, to take Giles's point. It comes down to that. So many football clubs never die. They just get reborn because... No, no, but you, but you missed my point, Ross. That, that, that you're right. All that's going to happen, though, is the difference between pre-valuation and post-valuation, that money goes poof. There's no, yeah, nothing's the, the changed. Yeah, the investors right? and the debt providers likely lose their money. But as you know, Grant, uh, they are not caring today. I mean, take Julius Baer, who this week were caught up in the FIFA uh, corruption thing and, and they got a, a pretty big fine. And, you know, the words money laundering are are, are thrown around and they facilitated... Um, you know, bribes to various people to vote for this and to vote for that. You know what it's like, Grant. You know, the, these people people uh, are operating on a six to 12 month time frame until they get their next bonus. And, you know, what will be will be. Uh, it's, it's just the nature of things, as you call it. It's late cycle. Uh, late cycle, you know, you get massive excesses. And, you know, you're right. People should have a little bit of money, you know, in a treasure trove to ready to pick up at just distressed levels when this thing pops. Look, I, w- I want to, before we before we wrap this up and get back to work, there's, there's, I, I want to talk about the Olympics. But before I do, I want to throw a couple of things in on the golf side. The first being the um, the Kepka dechambo rivalry, which I think is just absolutely magnificent to watch. Uh, and the second is the disqualification of John Rahm at the Memorial Tournament yesterday. I don't know if you saw I this. Did, yeah. did, you, did you see what happened there? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm interested in, in your thoughts. Let, let's talk about Rahm first, because that seemed, again, to be such a heavy-handed response that, that no thought went into whatsoever, either in the way he was informed the way it was handled in the moment, or the the broader consequences of, you know, why wasn't he allowed to play on his own, carry his own bag the following day, right? The guy had six shots clear in one of the most prestigious tournaments in the world, was asymptomatic. No one in the audience is wearing a mask. You know, the whole thing was just farcical to me. So I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Well, let me me go first on this golf thing. You're right. It, it was farcical, and when you look at it through the, the lens of common sense, it looked nonsensical. But isn't that true of the whole of COVID and government reactions Correct. to everything? Correct. Is that one minute in this country, in the UK, where, where I live, countries are open, then they're shut, then they're going to be on amber, and then they're going on red. And the trouble is that no one is in control of really all of the facts. No, but Charles, this is... But hang on, that, you're, you're, right, you're right, but you're making a decision there in the case of the UK, for 60 million people. This is one man who's been isolated all week because of he'd been in contact with someone. He's been on his own all week. This is easy to get right because you're, you're literally thinking about, okay, there's one guy here that we need to think about this for him. I, I think it's absolutely ridiculous what they did. I mean, I was uh, a poor guy. I mean, it was just absurd. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it was nonsensical and it's probably one of those things the next day, those people who made those decisions are probably holding their heads in absolute anguish, going, what were we thinking? I, I, think I, what, I doubt that. Well, I think they'll be defending themselves and their decision to the hilt because they have to. But yeah. <laughs> Well, I, yeah, and possibly. I just think what all I meant by COVID is that some extraordinarily bad decisions have been made where common sense seems to be the first thing chucked out the yeah. water. And yeah. that was a brilliant example of no common sense, to your point, where this could have been solved very, very quickly as as the baying crowds were all maskless. You're right. Um, and I just think it's been one of the things of the last 18 months is that common sense seems to have deserted many. 
Yeah, I don't have a, an awful lot to add. I felt desperately sad for him. I think Giles is right. You know, <laughs> when you look at, the, I think there's the, you know folk coming back from Portugal. All of a sudden, there's a draw a drawbridge coming down and or uh, been pulled up and they have to get back and they've been charged uh, exorbitant amounts. Uh, Brits trying to get back from Portugal. You know, everywhere you look, the COVID things is... Sadly, I just don't think the people that we have in charge of things these days are that good anymore. I know it's a horrible thing to say, but uh, I, I think they're too worried about their comms and their PR and then they just let common sense go. Dreadful for Ryan. And And yet, and yet, and going to your Kepka DeChambeau thing, I... Just wish that I was, sometimes I wish I was still doing the old, old HSBC gig and something like that had happened of a Kepka de Chambeau kind of conflagration because that is the grist to the mill that gets people watching, it gets people excited, it's the binary nature of sport and so often golf is so bloody boring with people <laughs> hidden under their sponsored caps, hitting chips in and they're all brilliant and they all do exactly the same mechanical swing and there is nothing. This Mickelson Woods growling was a brilliant part of the game, absolutely what made it so, so compelling. Likewise, Anyone who dislikes anybody in sport, immediately, immediately it, it creates something. People thought for years that McEnroe and Borg loathed each other. And this yeah. is a great little aside because of those incredible early 80s finals at Wimbledon where it, it looked like the, the brat and the cool Swede were simply not getting on. I discovered 30 years later from Bjorn Borg himself at an event he was doing for me that they were the very, very best of friends. But in my mind, I had this image of utter loathing and that's what made it so, so compelling. So I hope that DeChambeau and Kepka, I hope their, their bodies keep going. I'm not sure either of them will. One's on one knee and one's, surely his spine is about to snap. But my God, for the good of the game, <laughs> it would be brilliant. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I think, Rog, I think you were talking the week about whether it was all for show. I don't think so. Not with the way that it happened this week when DeChambeau was actually in the middle of his round and there's people getting thrown out because of heckling him and all that. So I, I think they take the game way too seriously to allow it to bleed into that. So I think it's genuine animus. I, I, I certainly I hope think, so think, anyway. I think I agree, but, you know, whilst it is great and, and, and I'm often criticised for saying, you know, bring bring the beef to, to sport and stop being so bloody gentlemanly in Corinthian, you then have to worry that it doesn't get out of hand so quickly. You know, you saw uh, Brooks, you know, with his sponsor giving beer to yeah. people that have been chucked out. That's wrong. That's just wrong. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I thought I thought that that was the first kind of unclassy move that I saw in the whole thing. That was, uh, yeah, that, that smacked of opportunism on the part of Michelob there. And I don't know, I've, I, I, if I'd have been Brooks's guy, I would have advised him against doing that. But hey. yeah. listen, before we, um, before we wrap up uh, the Olympics, we've talked on the show before about it. I've been adamant for ages that it wasn't going to go ahead. It looked very much like it was, and I was going to be wrong, but things seem to be shifting a little bit. What do you think? Will it go ahead? Should it go ahead, Giles? I think it will go ahead. I absolutely don't think it should go ahead. And there's a wonderful article in the Sunday Times that everybody should read. Well, they should always read David Walsh in the Sunday Times. He is a true journalist in, in, in the sense we were talking about what great journalists and great writing is all about. And he talks about the Olympics happening and that the IOC remains in this bubble of the VIP super lane highway where really all they're concerned about with cities is to make sure that they get to their comfortable seats faster than anybody else and that the Olympics is something that is really about for the IOC and this kind of faux royalty that Samaranch and others created. And for me, it shows the IOC so woefully out of touch. I understand why no one dare cancel because of insurance and who's culpable, all the rest of it. But as the rest of the world bleeds, as countries like India continue not to be able to exist properly, that an Olympic Games in a country which doesn't want it because they're facing yeah. their own spikes, the fact that bringing 10, 12,000 people from all over, all 210 countries in the world, to do a sports day, all the Olympics is is a sports day yep. on a mega global level and to be celebrated. But First World War, Second World War, it was cancelled. Of course they were cancelled because there are some things more important than the egg and spoon race in, in Tokyo. And this one just should not have happened. They had 
all of the warning and I understand why it's financial. So it just to me shows once again that the beating hearts of some of the governance of sport out of Switzerland is not in tune with the rest of the world. It's a great shame, Charles, because the Welsh were favourites for the egg and spoon, as far as I'm aware. So that's <laughs> there goes there goes your hopes of a medal. Should it go uh, ahead, Roger, Roger? What are your thoughts on yeah, it? Yeah, listen, I, I can't find anything wrong with what what Giles has said. It's a nonsense. However, I don't agree with the egg and spoon thing. I know it's flippant, but there are some people who, for 15 years, uh, have been preparing to get to an Olympic Games. Athletes, massive sacrifices. I'm thinking about swimmers getting up at four o'clock in the morning and all that. And God, you've got to try and get the, the damn thing on. But in the main, Giles is 100% right, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, look, we, we saw one-sided boycotts in, what, 80 and 84, uh, the, the US and the Russians. And so this isn't unprecedented from an athlete point of view that, that athletes have done all that training and missed out. And it is absolutely heartbreaking. You know, I'm sure our previous guest, Mark Henderson, would, would be able to give us a good look into the mindset of what that must be like. But, but at the end of the day, I think Giles is absolutely right. You can't make this about the individual athlete. I mean, it brings us back to John Rahm, right? So let Rahm play in the final round of the Memorial. If, if the primary concern is the athlete, then what are we doing? I mean, clearly these things aren't built around the athletes, Rog. The primary concern is not the athletes. The primary concern is the financial windfall that this makes for the IOC. It's as simple as that. Yeah, but uh, for some reason, I, I've got a soft spot for the Olympics for the reason I said before. Uh, and, and, you know, normally I would just slam them and say, like, corporate um, blinds, leading the blinds. But, you know, to close the circle in this episode, Osaka, who, remember, is Japanese and rumoured to be carrying their flag, she was asked about it. And um, she gave a, a, a response of her generation. She said, of course, we all wanted to go ahead, but if it makes certain people uncomfortable, then we shouldn't. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. There you go. I, I think it's going there to struggle. Go. I think it's going to struggle. It'll be interesting to see what happens now because they seem determined to go ahead, and you know they, they can't cheer. Uh, they, they, God, it's it's going to be such a blow for the Olympic movement because the Olympics they aren't. It's not the like World Championships that go ahead, and the Olympics is about the village. It's about uh, a coming together. Yeah. You know, like. If, if it's everybody in their dorm and then you turn up, you know, 10 minutes before and you do a test and you run and nobody can clap and then you go back to your dorm, what's the point? You know, what is the point? I agree. I agree. I, I still maintain my stance that this will not go ahead, but we'll see. Well, gentlemen, um, it's been another enjoyable hour. We must get back to work. Uh, all that remains, of course, is to thank you, the listeners, for sticking with us. Please take a moment to rate and review the show in iTunes. It really does help us. Our thanks to our sponsors, Entourage Media, for their assistance in bringing this to you. And, of course, my thanks to my fellow groundsmen, Roger Mitchell and Giles Morgan. If you want to follow us and you're not doing so already, you'll find us on Twitter at EntertainedR. That's the word A-R-E. You can follow me at TTMYGH. And you can follow me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. And I should just say, I've had a few requests from people wanting to know what my sandwich is every month. Well, this month, it was a prawn sandwich, <laughs> which for, for the corporate-minded is entirely opposite. Yes, uh, Roy Keane comes to mind there. Uh, and you can follow me at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Gentlemen, I'll see you next week. Wonderful. Yes.